When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sally was so clearly on the page to me. Like, she was written so rhythmically. Like, it sounds funny, but I had to, like, quiet my own preconceived anything about who she is or who she's going to be and listen to the rhythm of what is there. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Uh, Isaac, I am always just delighted to have an opportunity to chat with you, but I am so fascinated by the voice that we heard at the top of the show that that's all I can think about. So who Uh, was that? Well, you know, I don't want to keep you in suspense. Thank you. For too long. You're killing me. June. But uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, Working (laughs) listeners, June has actually died. I just uh, have watched her collapse on Zoom. Oh, yeah, Yeah. she's a ghost now. Uh, That was the voice of Sarah Goldberg, who plays Sally Reed on HBO's Barry. Now, for listeners out there who have not seen Barry, Barry uh, is about a hitman (laughs) who joins an acting class uh, in Los Angeles run by this kind of charismatic ghoul named Gene Cousineau, played by uh, the great Henry Winkler. And the star acting student of that class is this woman Sally Reed who's played by Sarah Goldberg. Uh, it's a really great show. It's funny. It's weird. It's dark. It, <laughs> it goes to really unexpected places and her performance uh, in some ways really anchors it. And why did you want to speak with her now? Well, I think uh, for a couple reasons. I've actually wanted to talk to her for like three years ever since we started doing the <laughs> show because I think her performance on that show is truly extraordinary. She's really the show's major, major find. Mm-hmm. Almost every other actor on that show is fairly well known from somewhere else. Robert F. Wisdom uh, from The Wire, Stephen Root, the great Stephen Root (laughs) from any number of things, Henry Winkler, Bill Hader, you know, um, uh, Fred Armisen even has a brief cameo this season. But she comes from like a big stage background. And this is really her breakthrough role, not her first TV role, but her breakthrough role. And she's extraordinary in it. And so I just really wanted to talk to her about it. But the second reason is that Barry is ending. And although we don't talk about the finale in this episode, uh, among other reasons, because no one's allowed to see the finale and we're not allowed to talk about the finale. I thought, what better time to air an interview with her than at the moment that we're actually saying goodbye to that character. Very smart. Well, I am very excited to hear the interview, but I believe that today there will be an extra segment exclusively for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? Yes, blasting straight into the ear holes of the uh, subscribers of Slate Plus. As you know, the stage is my first love. It's Mm. Sarah Goldberg's first love, too. Mm. So we talk about the differences between stage acting and putting on plays in London versus New York and the differences between stage acting and screen acting. And in fact, uh, most importantly, how do you use the very brief amount of time you have to rehearse on a TV set? Uh, when you're used to having weeks to do it, preparing a play. 
What a treat. If you're a member of Slate Plus, you'll hear that at the end of the episode. And if you aren't, it's really easy to join. As a member of Slate Plus, you will get to hear extra segments on this show, like the one we just described, and other shows such as The Waves and Culture Gabfest. You'll get bonus episodes of podcasts like Big Mood, Little Mood and Apple's podcast of the year, Slow Burn, which has a new season starting on May 31st, by the way. And of course, you will never hit a paywall on Slate.com. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Sarah Goldberg. Sarah Goldberg, thank you so much for joining us this week on Working to Talk About Your Process. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to meet you. So uh, let's maybe start close-ish to the beginning with training, right? You studied acting at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. What was it that made you choose that particular school out of all the acting schools in the English-speaking world? Well, honestly, I really wanted to travel to London to go to school. I backpacked through Europe when I was 18, and I fell in love with London and the theater there, and I wanted to go to school there. And Lambda was the only drama school that was still doing North American auditions and they did a bit of a tour of cities. So they would go to New York and Toronto and they went to Seattle. I grew up in Vancouver, so Seattle was a quick drive down. And my dad drove me down for my audition. Um, so really it was kind of a little bit of a fluke that it ended up being Lambda. I did have a drama teacher who went there as well. So I think it had always been in the back of my brain. But yeah, Lambda was, a, we, I did a three-year conservatory training. So we went all the way back to Greek theater and worked our way up to modern text. Yeah, what, what was the approach like there at Lambda? Like, what's the core of that training? The thing I loved about the training there was that they love to give you like a, a little taste of everything. So there is no real core ethos of this is how it's done or this is a method school or, you know, it's they want you to have a chance to try everything out so that in your career, whatever you're faced with in an audition or, you know, you can at least say, well, I could give that a go. So, um, you know, we had flamenco lessons, for example, which I can tell you I've never used. Um, but I think it's sort of the idea of like trying something out that takes you out of your comfort zone, feeling like a bit of an idiot, getting over it, trying again. And for me, that was the right kind of training. I feel like, you know, emotions have always come maybe too easily to me. Um, but I wanted to try out Shakespeare and Chekhov and, um, you know, all of these amazing old texts. And I wanted a chance to learn accents and, you know, physicalities. And so for me, it was the right kind of training. Like some of it was a waste of time and some of it I still use today, like any training. <laughs> yeah. What did you have to learn out of fence? I did. Well, <laughs> we did have a very um, prestigious stage combat course. I don't know. I always had a doctor's note. I was always <laughs> able to get out of that one. For me, it was like an extension of gym class. And I just did my best to get out of it. You, you did say there were some parts of the training that you feel like you still use. Can I just ask what those are? I mean, I think the main one, honestly, is this kind of um, fearlessness around embarrassing yourself and accepting that sometimes acting is very embarrassing. And 
you know, I might get an audition through or something that feels like it's out of reach for me. And it's getting over that hurdle and going, you know, I can find something to bring to the table here. Um, that's probably the main one. I think also heavier texts, um, like they were very good at helping us break down text. And uh, when we did Shakespeare on Barry, you know, I felt like stuff that I'd learned way back at Lambda was hugely helpful in terms of breaking down that famous tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow speech, you know, and I, I felt like there was definitely a skill set that they left us with. Is script analysis kind of where you start with a character? Is that what you start with, you know, doing the beats, thinking about objectives and given circumstances and whatnot? Yeah, I think it depends on the project, but mainly that's where I would start. And that is from real theater training, I think. And I worked with this incredible director, Dominic Cook, in the UK. We did Clybourne Park together over a decade ago. And he really broke that play down into all of these sections. You know, we did it as a group and we would find each beat, sort of name the beat and then move on. And so what we had by the time we were trying to get the thing on its feet was, you know, everybody was speaking the same language. We knew what the focal point of each section of that play was. And for an ensemble piece, that was so key and so important so that everybody stayed focused on the beat that needed to be clear for the story to be told. So that is generally where I'd start. I mean, I think I'm sort of basic with my process, I've got to be honest. I read a script and I can feel it in my bones or I can't. I don't, I read the character out loud. I'll always read the character out loud fairly quickly, like almost as soon as it's in my inbox or my hands. And I'll know within a few lines if that character rhythmically lives inside me somewhere or not. It's just kind of an instinct that I'll have for something or not. And you know, going back to what I said earlier, like if it's something that doesn't feel like a fit, that's not to say I won't go to bat and try, but I, I'm i not someone who thinks sort of every part is for everyone. It's like you you, you connect to a piece of material or you don't in, in a real kind of chemistry way. And so if on that first read something's cooking, um, I, I start there and I don't overanalyze it. You know, I try to just let the thing grow And then it's who you're working with. And I really think that it's another thing that Dominic taught me, but like he would say, you know, what you're doing is not interesting and what you're doing is not interesting. It's what is happening between you that I'm interested in. Mm. And so I, you know, you can prepare and prepare in isolation, but ultimately, you know, it's a team sport. And I feel like your work is only as good as what you're offering up to each other. And so, so much of it is just finding that chemistry between all of you as a group and making sure the story is clear between you. When you get that script and the spark is not happening on that first read. You said that doesn't mean that you're necessarily not going to do the part. And particularly, I imagine earlier in your career, you have less of a choice over whether you're going to do a part that you're auditioning for and whatnot. Uh, what do you do to get that spark to happen? Because it strikes me that, that that's often where technique comes in, right? Is like, well, I'm not feeling it. So how do I get to the place where I'm feeling it? Or what do I do now that I don't have that ready-made inspiration? Yeah, earlier in my career, I certainly didn't have a choice. And you'd put your hat in the ring for everything, you know? Um, the truth is if that spark was really not there, I usually didn't get the part. Um, that's not to say I didn't try and it, you're absolutely right. Technique would come in then. So, um, I remember I auditioned for Labette. I can't remember the name of the character now, but she's the one that doesn't speak. And 
oh my goodness, I read that script and I thought it was incredible, but I was so intimidated by it and I hadn't a clue what to do with it. And that is where my training came in handy. And I thought, okay, you can, you can offer something up. And I put together this whole physical thing, failed spectacularly in my audition, <laughs> did not get the part. But, you know, I felt like I kind of, you know, I gave it a go and giving it a go always felt better than not giving it a go. But for me, that spark, like that moment you kind of connect to a character, it kind of has to be there for me. It's like it's like something you're burning to do or, or a story you're burning to tell. And I think that that comes through in your audition. It comes through in what you're offering up. And, and ultimately that's usually ended up with me getting the job versus the ones where I've really given it a good old try um, with, yeah, technique, put my voice training on it, give it a go. But yeah, I think that initial meat of that character, it's something that is kind of in my stomach or not. Obviously, our listeners probably know your work from Barry, from the TV show Barry, in which you play Sally. It's currently in its final season, but but to rewind, you know, you got that spark clearly in the role, I would imagine, from the first read. How did you set about creating that role? Are there people she's based on? Is there voice or physical stuff you were doing? Or, you know, once you're sort of trying to make this from words on a page to a human being, you know, what were those kind of early steps? Sally was so clearly on the page to me. Like she was written so rhythmically, like there was a musicality to the way that script was written and there was a rhythm to the comedy. And so I suppose like, and by the way, every time I feel the spark, it's not like that's a mutual thing. There's plenty of times right. I feel the spark on the script, do not get the job. But, you know, with, with Sally, I, you know, I had a feeling in my bones, like I, I know who this woman is. I know who she is. Um, so like, it sounds funny, but I had to like quiet my own preconceived anything about who she is or who she's going to be. And listen to the rhythm of what is there. And when I could hear that and then bring that out loud, it was like she existed in the room. I know this sounds sort of like um, not tangible. (laughs) I'm trying to say (laughs) something that might be helpful to another actor. And this is just my own strange process. But I, I, yeah, I felt like I listened to that rhythm. I, I said the words out loud and I thought, okay, this is who this woman is. And then from there we had a baseline and for years, you know, we've been making the show seven years. And, and in that time, like that character has run a pretty crazy arc and the show changes genre, you know, goes from comedy to drama, sometimes more to horror thriller. Um, so there's preparation that goes into when the tone changes, you know, it's a very elastic tone for a half hour comedy. And so some of the preparation for Sally is really about figuring out what the tone of that episode is and without abandoning the character, figuring out how to meet that. And, um, you know, Sally is a really fun character because there's so many characters within the character because she's an actress, you know, there's audition scenes she gets to do. There's her own TV show or there's Shakespeare or, you know, in this recent season, she's, you know, living under a different persona. So like, there's been so many things I've been able to do within the role and each of those has taken, yes, yeah, slightly different kind of preparation. Some days it's like we're going to improv a scene and, 
you know, we've got the bones in place, but we can kind of wing it. Other days, it's a much more technical day. There's a huge speech and every beat needs to be hit. So that takes a different kind of prep. So I think it was sort of rising to the occasion each time as the show changed um, to make sure that, you know, I was ready for, for a work day. Yeah, I mean, you know, you speak to kind of the elastic tone and, and genre of the show. How do you prepare when you're like, okay, this week's episode, you know, Sally's in a thriller. Yeah, Last yeah. week she was in a farce. This week she's in a thriller, essentially. You know, how do you, what does that preparation look like? Is it like you go and watch a bunch of 70s thrillers or something? Or is it, you know, how do you, how do you clue into style like that without abandoning the core of the character? I don't know. I mean, it it would depend on what it was. So, for example, you know, in season two, um, I had a big monologue and at the end of the season and it was very much written like its own mini play. So I prepared that the way I would prepare a play. I rehearsed it backwards and forwards, inside out. I found a rhythm with what I was doing and I you know, had it deeply in my bones. Like if I had to do that eight times a week, I could do it, you know. I am so jealous that you're reading for this. I have never had a director session for a feature, which is the same thing as a movie, P.S. And I have been doing this for way longer. And I think you'd agree that I am way better. I made you. And I, I, and it was in one take, right? Wasn't that, wasn't that, it was like one five minute. I was told way in advance when we started the season, I was told it was going to be one take. That wasn't something that we decided on the day. That was, um, and sometimes Bill will do that. Sometimes we'll, we'll be shooting a scene and we were going to get all regular coverage and then he sees something really works in a one so that's how we end up shooting it. But with this, I was prepared that it was going to be uh, in one take. And, um, you know, he said to me early in the season, we're, we're going to write like a seven page monologue for you. And we're just going to hold the camera and you're just going to talk. And I was like, great thinking that's going to get cut, (laughs) but I'm going to have fun doing it. Um, so yeah, I prepared it. Yeah. Like a play. And then, yeah, it was one take. I think we did four takes in the end and we did two and they're like, we got it. I was like, guys, I've worked so hard on this. Please, can we have two more? I never ask for more takes, but that was one that I was like, I need to enjoy this. Um, and I feel like the first two are like the nervy ones, you know, you got to get those out. And then, and then three and four were the more sort of enjoyable ones. Um, but yeah, it's, it was such a special thing to get to do that in television. And I thought, okay, so this is a theatrical tone. This is what this needs. And Later in the season, as it, you know, gets more into thriller and horror and heavier drama, I mean, the clues are in the text, right? It's like, they're great writers. We can trust each other. I can trust on set that we were working with the best camera team, the best lighting team, you know, so some of that genre is going to be taken care of for you. And I feel like my job is to really understand the text and commit to the tone within the words, really. And and you have to sort of trust that you're walking towards something that fits that genre without overthinking it because you'll you'll throw yourself. So um, so really, I think it was about committing truthfully to each beat and the and the genre would sort of take care of itself. Mm. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Sarah Goldberg.
Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we answer listener questions. So please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you solve them. Drop us a line at working at slate.com. You can also send us a voice memo to that address or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK and leave a voicemail. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Sarah Goldberg. You know, you talking about the extra takes brings up something that, you know, actors I've talked to and actors who've written memoirs also talk about this as they go from stage to screen. You know, the shift between playing the entirety of a role over two hours from start to finish and, and managing that to doing things out of order, repeating them over and over and again for takes, you know, uh, uh, often having to hit very specific physical positions because of camera and stuff. Was that a tough adjustment for you when you were starting out? That was the toughest adjustment. And that was the thing I missed the most in the beginning, which is, you know, you do a play, there's nothing like it. You're telling the story from start to finish, live in a room full of people, all phones are off. Everybody's focused on the same thing. And there's an energy to that. And it's an energy that you really feed off of on stage. And, you know, the satisfaction of telling the whole story in one go and it being collectively shared and witnessed um, it's intoxicating. It's why so many actors go back to the stage. It's, it's, it's the most joyful place in the world. <laughs> and once I started film and TV, I mean, to begin with, I was terrified of the camera. So when I was working in theater in my 20s, I thought, I'll never work on TV. That, that's it. That's fine. I'm a stage actor. I'll be broke, but I'll be happy. It will be fine. And I got my first big TV job um, when I was in my late 20s. It was a TV show called Hindsight. And the only reason I got that job was I went into the audition and the casting director, Mark Sachs, who was always lovely to me, even though I was always coming in a nervous wreck into his office, um, I went into the audition and he had kidney stones. He was doubled over in pain. I was like, Mark, are you okay? He's like, well, I have kidney stones, but I'll be fine. I was like, Mark, you have to go to the hospital. Like, we do not need to make this tape. You have to go to the hospital. He's like, no, no, no. Let's just get the take, get the take, and then I promise you I'll go to the hospital. I was like, no, I think you need to go to the hospital. <laughs> anyway, he convinced me to, to do the scenes, and obviously I was so focused on him and concerned for him, I completely forgot myself, forgot my nerves, and just went for it on the scenes, and I ended up getting that job. And so I think that, and then hindsight was an amazing training ground because it was 16 hours a day, um, you know, on camera every day, five days a week. I learned so much technically. It was really, really challenging. And I initially, like, I was afraid of the camera. Everything was so, there was so much machinery, you know, there's a boom, there's there's a body mic, there's lights in your face, there's all these distractions. And I think what was challenging was focusing Uh, It took me a long time to find my focus. And I think, you know, sort of being able to just have that quiet in your own mind and not being afraid to take up a little bit of space within the character. So I learned that as I went. And the, the chronology of it all, when, you know, you're starting... I mean, even this season of Barry, the first scene I shot was the end of episode four, when I say, let's go to Barry. That was the very first thing I shot of season four. We haven't built any of these stepping stones. You know, we haven't... Um, had the scene in prison. We haven't felt these things in our bones to get to this beat. So you really have to rely on your imagination. And I think it's important that you go back through the story and 
remember, okay, we, we did this, then we did this, we did that. And now this is going to, you know, pitch here because of everywhere we've come before. And it just, for me, it just took practice, I think, to also have the confidence to um, pitch something as heightened as it needs to be without all those stepping stones there, like in your bones and understanding how so much magic happens in the edit and you're sort of providing all these little puzzle pieces. And I think once you relax into that and realize like each moment is this little piece and eventually someone's going to sit in a dark room for an insane amount of time and make magic out of this, you know, you can relax into, okay, all I need to focus on is this tiny little moment and give this moment my full attention. And there's actually, it can be really liberating. The pressure's kind of off because you can just live really in that moment. And if you make a mistake, you can do it again, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and if you, if you want to try something and take a big swing and miss, you can. So that... I started to relax into the joys of what the medium can actually offer instead of just, um, you know, lamenting and missing the beautiful parts of theater. I tried to find, right. like, you know, the magic in, in making TV. You know, Shelley Winters uh, talked about that a lot. She said, uh, how do we do our job in front of all that machinery? She actually used that phrase, all that machinery. So that was, that was her big thing, was that she found it very hard to do even late in her career. It's so hard. And, you know, the last two seasons of Barry, we had the most extraordinary camera A op in the business. His name is Don Devine, really lives up to the name. <laughs> and, you know, he was such an incredible artist. And, you know, on Barry, we do so many close-ups, like insane close-ups, where you're actually acting to a small piece of tape inside the map box. You're not even looking at the other actor. And so you're really working with Don more closely in many cases than the other actor. So whenever I'd get nervous or I'd feel the machinery was somehow interfering, I would just go, you're just waltzing with Don. You're just waltzing with Don. And again, like finding the connectivity with the human, but behind the machine, you know, and his focus is as intense as my focus. And, you know, that we're building this thing together. For me, that really took the pressure off and I stopped seeing the machine. Right. You know, one thing that's sort of a part of Sally's arc in that first season is that she becomes a good actor, right? Or she drops the artifice that's getting in the way when she has that moment of the Shakespeare moment at the end of the of the season, right? When she like some it unlocks something more truthful in her, right? It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury. signify nothing similarly there's plenty of moments beyond that where you know sally or any of the characters are viewed with a certain level of irony by the show right do you worry about that as an actor do you feel you know is that do you consider that part of your job to create that little bit of irony or are you like the camera is doing that the text is doing that i just have to like play this moment sincerely yeah i think all of us you know have felt throughout the years, you know, within this elastic tone and all the zany things that we've done over the years that we have to just commit honestly to what the character is doing in that moment. And we can't really think too much about the outside eye on it or what the commentary is on it. You know, maybe you're reading the script as an audience member with an outside eye and you're reading the whole piece and you can kind of 
see that and and make those judgments and, and laugh at the expense of these characters. But when you're within it, you know, you can't really send them up or the comedy falls flat. So, and Sally has such a guileless quality to her, at least she did in the earlier seasons. That's been, that's been washed right off with like nail polish remover. <laughs> She's like <laughs> barely has skin left at this point. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like in those early seasons, that guileless quality was really a key entry point to her. And um, I always said, you know, like there's like a, of course there's a cruelty to Sally and, and she says these really nasty things, but it's not calculated cruelty. She's not considering other people enough to think it through enough to say these cruel things. It's just coming into her head and coming out. Um, that is really fun to play, you know? It's like, because she often says and does the wrong thing, which is more fun to play than doing the right thing or the kind thing or the easy thing. Um, you know, there was so much talk about, you know, Sally's likability or dislikability and, Never, ever, ever even occurred to me. I mean, when have you ever gone to a dinner party and the next day you've gone, you know, you've gone, oh God, you know, he was so likable or she was so likable. It's like, it's not an adjective that we even use in life. And it's only right. a barometer that we use on women on TV. We never talk about likability or dislikability with male characters. And I always said, you know, you don't have to like her. You have to know her. I know this woman. And if you believe her and you know her, that's enough for me. I don't care if you like her. You know, there's times that I didn't like her. There's times that I did. You know, she's somebody in the world who's really trying, gets it really wrong. But the fact that she's trying, you know, always left like lots of really fruitful stuff to play. You know, I remember when I was in maybe middle school, maybe freshman in high school, I went to see the novelist Tim O'Brien read because he had a new novel. You know, the guy who wrote The Things They Carried and, and he, had, he had a new uh, novel out and he had gotten some pushback on the unlikability of the narrator. This was his book, Tomcat in Love. And he like, in time about it, he like really lost his temper. It was, it was really fascinating to watch. And I remember him saying, uh, well, excuse me. But would you want to have a dinner with Lady Macbeth? I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was an important thing for me to hear when I was like a freshman in, in high school from a writer I greatly admired that, that you know, likability was is really it's a trap and it's horseshit when you're talking about the creating of art. Well, exactly. And also, you know, Barry is a show about morality and it's a show about people making bad decisions and how many bad decisions makes you a bad person. Um, you know, the, there's sort of a thesis for all the characters of like, which, you know, really comes to a head in this final season, which is like, am I a good person? Am I a bad person? And how are you supposed to explore those themes or present that to an audience with everyone being likable? You know, I always right. found it fascinating, especially on a show where everybody else was like killing everyone. And I was just saying a few sort of mean things, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Sally was the one that was sort of fixated on. And so, you know, there's definitely gender involved, which I found fascinating and I was sort of anticipating. And so I really fought for her, you know, through the seasons of like, we, we cannot listen to those voices. You know, I'm not on social media anyway, so I didn't have to see any of the garbage, but like, I just didn't want any of that to dictate who this person is. Like, this is somebody who is complex, morally bankrupt in some ways, just like her male counterparts on the show. And we need to explore in that murky territory. It's going to be a lot more fun to watch. 
And also we can explore much more interesting themes, you know? I didn't want yeah. her to ever just be the girlfriend role. Um, and luckily, you know, that's not what Bill or Alec wanted either. So um, we managed to steer clear of those cliches. You know, Sally, as a character, really does have to go to some very ugly places and also some huge emotional places. Um, you know, obviously the elevator scene with Darcy Carden that becomes a sort of running joke on the show. You have nothing to say about anything. You've never struggled a day in your whole fucking life. You mentioned earlier that emotions come pretty easily to you for an actor, but I'm just wondering about how you prepare for that. You know, some people do a lot of sense memory work. Some people uh, have a, you know, a poem that they read that gets them into the moment or whatever it is. What's, what's your emotional preparation like? It often depends what it is, but I, as I'm getting older, the thing I'm trying to do is trust myself that it's going to exist between action and cut. And I actually find that the less I think about it and the less I work myself up for it or, or you know, sort of try to get into any kind of state ahead of time, the better. I, I kind of like to keep things really light and buoyant and joke around and kind of keep very much in the present between takes in order um, to conserve energy and sort of also protect my mental health. Um, you know, I was pretty nervous for that scene with Darcy. And I also find anger, you know, I do say emotions come easily to me. I'm not sure what that says about me. But, you know, anger is a hard one. I feel like, you know, female rage is something I'm fascinated by. And I feel like, you know, growing up, women were, or girls my, you know, age in my generation, we were never encouraged to really release any kind of anger. And that was seen as an ugly thing. And, you know, it took getting to my adult years and through lots of therapy to realize, like, oh, I don't actually have access to anger. It's not, you know, but it's in there. It's definitely in there. So a scene like that, honestly, I just saw it as an opportunity. I thought, Bill's going to call action and I'm just going to let my body release something, you know, and trust that something's going to come out and you can't be too big. And you know, the beauty on the Barry set was like, you can't really fail. There was a lot of trust we all had in each other and you know you can go again. So yeah, I feel like with those huge emotional moments, again, it's about focus and collective focus and just trusting yourself in the moment that we all have access to these parts of ourselves. We all have it somewhere and allowing your kind of yielding, really yielding and letting go of any kind of embarrassment in order to have like a free channel that that can come out. One rhyme between you and the character on some level is, you know, the sudden achievement of success and fame after a lot of really hard work, right? But, you know, part of what is going on over the course of season three, especially, is how destabilizing it is to suddenly be a public figure or to suddenly have a certain place in the industry and everything like that. And I'm just wondering how you yourself guarded against that or, or, or handled it because obviously you haven't gone crazy. So, you know, just, just about, you know, your relationship to fame, I'm sure is very different than the characters and just sort of how you've navigated that and how that's affected you as an artist to suddenly be much more in the public eye than you were before. Well, I feel lucky that any kind of visibility like that happened to me just a little bit later in life. I think it would have been a lot more destabilizing had it happened in my early 20s. I I feel, I, I read this interview with Christina Applegate that was like, what's the secret to your success? 
um, or what's the secret to the longevity of your career? And she says, moderate success. <laughs> and I think that, <laughs> you know, there's something around, Barry is a show that we, you know, we're lucky enough to have a large audience for, but I also, I still have my anonymity. Like I, you know, took the subway yesterday and moving to London has really helped. And, and that, you know, I, I don't often get recognized. And usually when I do, people are really kind and they just want to say, you know, I really love the show. And, and I appreciate that. You know, there are, there have been a few times that I've been nervous and there's been someone who's really crossed a personal boundary, um, you know, and you just kind of learn how to protect yourself in those moments. But I feel like, you know, I, I hope I've struck a kind of balance where I can still live my life and, and also do what I love. And, you know, you need a certain amount of success and visibility in this business in order to sustain a, a long career. Unfortunately, that's kind of part of the deal, it feels like, in order to keep working. So there's a bit of an exchange there. But I don't feel that mine has crossed over into any kind of hysteria. And I have seen that happen to friends. And and it's it's a rough ride. It's a pretty... It's a pretty intense deal, that one. And, um, and you know, you gain a lot in your career, but you lose a lot of personal freedoms. And I, I feel like I've been really lucky and found a kind of sweet spot. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us here on Working to talk about your process. Thank you so much, Isaac. I really appreciate your very intelligent questions. <laughs> oh, shucks. Up next, Isaac and I will talk about artistic training and how we can all learn to make the most of our talents and interests. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Isaac, you know that I love an Isaac gets processy with actors interview, and that was a great one. Oh, thanks. Before we get to the nuts and bolts of the interview, given your deep knowledge of the way actors prepare and train, after all, that's an important thread in your amazing book, The Method. I'm curious how well you think Barry presents the world of acting and the teaching of acting. And I'm going to give you a second question before you get a chance to answer the first one. Did you enjoy the show? I mean, you kind of had to watch it, right? Because it's your beat. Did you actually get to experience pleasure from it? Oh, yeah. I love the show. I love Barry. I love it in general. And I really love its presentation of the world of acting, which ah. I should say over the course of the last couple seasons, that becomes less and less the focus of the show. The show becomes focused on on other things. But, you know, it's first two seasons are very much set in the world of that 
acting class and then in the various kind of crime families around Los Angeles. I actually wrote a piece about Barry and acting class for uh-huh. Slate during the show's second season. Maybe we can put that on the show page. Um, I would say it's treatment of acting and of Hollywood and of how acting teachers work and everything is parodic. I mean, you know, it is a showbiz satire and a crime thriller at the same time, right? But it's clearly heavily researched. And I will say for method history heads, <laughs> I should tell you, Henry Winkler studied with Stella Adler at oh. Yale when he was a grad student at Yale. And the character of Gene Cousineau is in part based on her. And some of the scenes where he's doing acting exercises with Barry in the first season are actually based on his experiences in her acting class. That's amazing. I was also really struck by what Sarah had to say about how hard it is to be a TV actor. As you pointed out, they're usually taping out of sequence, so it's hard to find the emotional moment. As Sarah noted, they're often closer to the camera and the camera operator than to their scene partner. Uh, She said the best way to learn how to be a good TV actor is to be cast in a network style TV show where you get a lot of reps and develop the skills by doing it. And I have to say That answer made me wonder if we give far too much credit to stage acting. I mean, PR people will stress that someone is a classically trained actor and talk about their stage experience. But now I'm thinking maybe we should make more of people who have done seasons and seasons of television because maybe that's more challenging and something we should be more impressed by. Talk me down, Isaac. Talk me down. Well, I have never acted on television, right? You know, so I I can't speak to my own experience. But most actors that you talk to will tell you that once you get the hang of film and TV Mm -hmm. acting, it's much easier than stage acting. Whereas stage acting, if you're really committed to it, never gets (laughs) any easier on some level. You know, now Sarah didn't say that. I also didn't ask her about it, but that was not her perspective. But I'm just saying for most actors I've spoken to, the stage is the real mountain to climb. Um, There are are particular challenges to TV and film. If you're on a season of, if you're on a network season of TV, you're doing that like nine months out of the year, right? You know, it's exhausting. It's very Mm -hmm. boring. A lot of it is just sitting there waiting to go on screen. You are, uh, the actor is often the least important part of the process. Lighting and camera angles, all that stuff's much more important. But, you know, at, at the same time, the stage is the real mountain to climb because the idea of having to give one coherent performance over a couple of hours is seen as much more difficult. In the 20th century, film and TV acting were really looked down upon by a lot of teachers and actors as not real acting. Like even if you read the memoirs of people who were famous film actors, you know, they sort of denigrate it. It's the thing you do for money and fame, whereas theater is art. Now that has changed recently, that attitude. And I think that's a good thing. I want to make it very clear. I'm not denigrating film and TV acting. The challenges of theater are unique though. And when you're on stage, you know, you don't have a lot of support. You can't yell cut. There's a, it's you and the other actors. And, and so I, I think it's, it's got its unique challenges. Yeah. And you really, I mean, you, again, that's something that Sarah said that you just inhabit that playwright. If you're doing it eight times a week for however many weeks, Like that is something that's going to be in your bones and that's got to be, unless you truly hate what you're doing, you know, the play that is, that's got to be just a tremendous artistic experience just to really, you know, sink into something that way. That's, that's got to be amazing. Yeah. When you asked her how she prepared for the big emotional scenes that she's called upon to perform, it was interesting to hear her talk about needing to protect her mental health and her energy. I mean, that's 
it's wonderful to hear that, that that's something she's thinking about. But I also realize that's really hard for a performer, for a, a lot of people. There are so many times when we ask people to really get stuck into something that's that's very hard. You know, that could be an acting gig where doing your job requires an actor to experience and relive and really get close to really damaging emotion. But I can also think of cases where writers have effectively been beset by PTSD because they're covering trauma and feel they have to immerse themselves in it for their job. Do you have any advice on that situation? Like, how can you protect yourself? She made it sound easy, and I, I really don't think it is. No, I don't think it's easy. And, you know, most actors I talk to, I mean, some of them, it's very easy. You know, like, mm-hmm. it just doesn't get to them. That's not mm-hmm. part of their process, and, and that's fine. But different actors work in different ways, and there's no right or wrong way to do it so long as you're not abusing the people you work with, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no matter what, I do think that this is where technique comes in and is extremely important. If you're just relying on your own impulses and your talent, even if it's considerable, you're really going to get in trouble. And I might feel that way because that really did happen to me yeah. in high school and college. Uh, I discussed this in the intro to The Method. Um, and that's part of why I never pursued acting as an adult because I, I just realized I wasn't actually tough enough to do it. it, it actors have to be tough. And then they also have to be vulnerable it's it's it, you could see why there's a certain crazy making dynamic there yes i do think however to get back to my big point it is important to learn technique technique mm. can help you realize those moments safely for some people that technique's just going to come from working all the time that technique comes from experience and then they sort of devise it they figure out what works and what doesn't for most of us it'll probably involve some form of training and since this is not only a podcast about acting i feel like yeah. i should say that Any uh, form of artistic creation involves emotional risk on some part, I think, you know, I mean, there's stuff I wrote about in the, the method, which is just a, you know, it's about 20th century acting and I still got emotionally kind of fucked up by it. And June, Uh. I'm sure in your book, uh, about the history of lesbian culture through the spaces in which that culture has, has occurred. There's plenty of real serious stuff that's like hard to take and deal with and live in and be immersed in and write about. And, you know, you have to figure out how to take care of yourself. Um, for yeah. me, as I've said many times on this podcast, you know, I have a partner I talk to about yeah. it. I have a therapist yeah. I talk yeah. to about it. You know, I have other writers, you know, but there's things you got to do. You got to figure out how to do it. Yeah, true. Isaac, as we've established, you are an authority on acting. We've talked about how Barry deals with acting. I want you to tell me your other favorite TV shows or movies about the profession. Who did it well? Oh, man. I mean, there are a ton of them. So I just want to focus on one because I mm. feel like it it needs to be rediscovered once <sighs> every seven or eight years or so to bring it back into the discourse. And that is the unbelievable three season dramedy slings and arrows. Yes, uh, it's yes. maybe my favorite show. I know many TV critics for whom it's their favorite show. Uh, each season is about a big summer Shakespeare festival based on Stratford, Ontario, mm-hmm. putting on at least one of Shakespeare's plays. In the first season, uh, it's about a production of Hamlet. In the second season, it's a production of the Scottish play. And in the third season, <laughs> it's a production of King Lear. And there, in each season, there's major resonances between what's going on in the play and this kind of backstage farce that evolves. So for example, in the first season, the head of the theater has died and his, um, 
wayward protege who suffered a mental breakdown many years ago and now runs an experimental theater company is brought on to finish this production of Hamlet as the director. And of course, it was a production of Hamlet during which he lost his mind. And while he is directing it, the ghost of the dead director (laughs) starts visiting him so that they can argue about the production. Uh, It also has uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel's Luke Kirby and a pre-fame Rachel McAdams in it. Um, But what's great about it is that the conversations they have about theater are very real. The conversations they have about interpretation of the plays are are real. Those folks really know their shit about Shakespeare and they really care about it. But even if you don't know that, they they fill it all with personal stakes on a really serious level. And it's really, really funny. So uh, uh, I highly, highly, highly could not more highly recommend Slings and Arrows. We've got to end this show right now because I've got to go rewatch Slings and Arrows one more time. Paul Gross, if you're listening, come on working. Oh, my God. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you will never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like this one, whole other episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you so much to Sarah Goldberg and to our producer, Cameron Drews, who always deserves a standing ovation. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with prolific and beloved mystery novelist Ellen Hart. She'll be talking about a moment that all people, whether creative or not, confront, but that has specific challenges and meanings to artists. Namely, when do you retire? Until then, get back to work. 